Amen. If you'd turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Finished up uh, John chapter 3 last week, so here we are in chapter 4. And tonight we're uh, examining a passage. It's a, it's a familiar story. It's Jesus and the woman at the well. And in this passage we're going to see again Christ's humanity, but we're also going to see His, His deity on full display and the contrast between those two. And we're going to see His treatment of those who are outcast in society. And we're going to see him breaking social and cultural norms and see him seeking after those whom the Father has elected, calling them to himself. So let's go ahead and look in chapter 4 and we'll read verses 1 through 30. It says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had learned that Jesus had been making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come to draw water here again. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Now this is, this chapter is yet another dialogue that we see with uh, Jesus and an individual. We saw in chapter 3 a long dialogue between him and Nicodemus talking about uh, having to be born again. And here in chapter 4 we see him and the Samaritan woman. And there's 
contrast between the two that could not be greater. Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was a male. She was untrained. She was a female and a peasant. Nicodemus started with theological issues. The Samaritan woman started with practical issues. Nicodemus was a Jew. The woman was a Samaritan. Their attitudes were different. Nicodemus showed respect. She showed uh, reluctance and hostility. But there is one thing that both of these individuals had in common, one thing that bonded them both together. They both needed a Savior. They were both condemned sinners, and the Savior was revealing Himself to them. So we start out with a transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4. When the Pharisees learned that Jesus was making more disciples than John, Jesus did not baptize but His disciples. He left Judea and parted again for Galilee. Now we don't know exactly what the Pharisees at this point were thinking about Jesus and Him baptizing uh, more than John, but we do know what they thought about John the Baptist. We saw that clearly in chapter 1. They were concerned about the mass followings that these men were gathering to themselves as opposed to what the Pharisees were teaching, and they wanted to know what, what right did they have to do this? Under what authority were they preaching these things, or what authority were they baptizing? These were common people. You know, John the Baptist was the crazy guy that had uh, ate locusts and had uh, really natty hair and, and lived out in the wilderness. Jesus, he was just the son of a carpenter. You know, who are these people to be baptizing others and, and preaching repentance? So Jesus finds out about this, and he decides uh, to leave Judea and head to Galilee. They uh, left where Jerusalem was. They go back to their home territory. And remember, it was in Galilee that where is Cana. Cana is in Galilee where Jesus turned the water into wine. It's in Galilee where Nazareth is found, Jesus' hometown. It's in Galilee where most of the disciples were from. And that is now where they are heading back to. And in order to get to Galilee, they had to pass through Samaria, as we saw in verse 4. Now, we need to unpack this for a second to make sense of it, because obviously... Uh, Samaria, the path through Samaria, it's not the only way to Galilee from Judea. There's three routes that you could take. You could cross over the Jordan and go up around the eastern side of Israel and go into Galilee that way. You could go to the west and actually get on a ship in the Mediterranean Sea and head north into Galilee. But those routes would add days onto an already three-day journey into Galilee from Judea to go through Samaria. Now, many people, uh, they would say that the Jews never went through Samaria to go to, to go to Galilee. They would always go around on one of the other two routes, and that's actually what I've been taught my entire life. And they would say that this adds impact to the decision Jesus made to go through uh, Samaria. Uh, why would he go through Samaria when he was a Jew? But this actually isn't even true. That's not the case at all. Um, it's an incorrect teaching. Josephus, the ancient historian of the first and second centuries, he writes this in, in his Antiquities of the Jews. He says, It was the custom of the Galileans when they came to the holy city at the festivals to take their journeys through the country of the Samaritans. So obviously this was not some strange thing for Jesus to be traveling through Samaria. This was customary. But it also says that he had to. Well, in what sense did he have to? This can be taken in two different ways. The first, it can mean that he just had to because that was the custom. That's just what the Galileans did. They needed to go home from Jerusalem. They went through Samaria. But it can also mean he did it because he had a divine appointment with this Samaritan woman. He had to meet this Samaritan woman. 
And I believe we should take both ways as the correct way. Yes, this was the custom. He was always going to go through this, but there was also this important meeting that was going to happen. Nevertheless, they are traveling through Samaria in order to get to Galilee, and they come to Jacob's well. In verses 4 through 6, it says, He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, Jacob's well is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It doesn't talk about Jacob digging this well, creating this well, drawing water from this well. But it's well known that it was traditionally passed down from the centuries of the Old Testament that Jacob did, in fact, dig this well, did, in fact, use this well throughout the generations his Uh, descendants would use this well. And geographically it fits, as verse 5 tells us, it was near the field that Jacob gave to Joseph, which we do see in the book of Genesis and mentioned again in Joshua. This was was a deep well. It was, um, and it's actually still there today. You can go see Jacob's well there in Israel. It was approximately 106 feet deep and they would draw water up with with buckets and containers out of this well, 106 feet. It's important to note that Jesus was weary. It says he was wearied from the journey. And this reminds us that though Jesus was God, he was also truly human. He felt what we felt. He got tired. He got hungry. He was like us in every way except one. He did not sin. In every other way, though, he was human. He was not some projection of a human, kind of like we would think of as a, as a hologram. He was truly God and truly man. And let's just take a moment to look at a few verses that affirm the reality of Jesus' human nature. Obviously, here in verse 6, he's tired from a journey. In the next verse, we see he's thirsty. We see Jesus' thirst at the cross in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, it says, And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Matthew 8, 24, Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And in Matthew 21, 18, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And Jesus was Truly God and truly man. This is important, as I said, because there is a heresy called docetism, which says that Jesus wasn't really human. He was just God projecting himself as a human. But he talked like us. He became hungry like us. He got thirsty like us. He got tired like us. Jesus was truly human as well as truly God. It's important because of what it means for us. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The truth is we have a Savior that understands exactly what we go through. He understands what we feel. He understands what we need. 
He understands our trials. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tempted as we are tempted, but he did not sin. Because of this, because he is like we are just without sin, he was able to save us. He was able to be that perfect sacrifice. And back in John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. There's two strange things about this interaction. The first is this. It's the time of day that the woman was coming. It says that she came at the sixth hour. This was noon. It was the hottest part of the day uh, for the Jews. This would have been strange because women normally would have come uh, to draw water either in the early morning or in the early evening when it was cooler and not at the hottest part of the day. And they would also uh, not normally be alone. The women would come together as a group, but she came alone. Why she came at this time and why she came alone, we don't know for sure. But based on what happens in the rest of the passage, we have a pretty good idea. She's not somebody who uh, we would look to as the symbol of moral living. She would have been an outcast because of her her past. And she would want to be alone because we know what Jesus is going to expose. She would have been uh, feeling shameful and scorned by by others. She was ashamed. She was guilty. And she, she wouldn't have wanted to have been around other people. She was going to come at the hottest part of the day by herself because theoretically nobody would be there. She wanted to be alone. But the second oddity about this interaction is that Jesus is actually speaking with this woman uh, this is strange for several reasons. The first is that this is a Jewish man speaking to a woman in public. This just was not done in that culture. Uh, men and women did not speak in public, and they especially didn't speak if they were strangers. Uh, this would go against everything in that culture. And the second is that she was a Samaritan. Jews did not speak to Samaritans, as we will see later. This is an animosity and a hatred that goes uh, back between these two groups for centuries. Um, and we'll look deeper uh, at why that is. But the hatred ran deep, and there's a ton of underlying reasons. It's not just straight, simple racism. It definitely was that, but it was much deeper than that. In fact, in 2 Kings 17, verse 6, it says this, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So Assyria, they had captured um, Samaria. This is in the 8th century BC, so quite a long time before where we are now, and took the Israelites into exile. But we see from other places in Scripture, especially First Chronicles, that not all of the Israelites were taken from Samaria into Assyria. Some were left there in the land. But what happened was the Assyrians then, they came and they settled in Samaria and they started intermarrying with the Israelites that were left. And the Israelites and their descendants, they started to worship the gods of the Assyrians as well as the Lord God. In 2 Kings 17, 33, it says, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from whom among they had been carried away. And this is the major reason that the Jews hated the Samaritans. Because when the Israelites returned to the land from their exile, 
they no longer viewed the Samaritans as fellow Jews. They no longer viewed them as children of promised children of the covenant. Instead, they viewed them as, as rebels. They actually referred to them as half-breeds. They hated these people for what, what they did. They viewed them as subhuman because they had uh, left the Israelite culture. They decided to worship other gods. And eventually the Samaritans, they would become less and less involved with these pagan gods as the Assyrians moved out and, and left them to the land. And so they started worshiping the Lord again, but they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture. They didn't want to have anything to do with the Jews that hated them, but they did see their descendant from, from Jacob and, and all that down to Moses. So they accepted those first five books, but they didn't want to accept anything else of the prophets of Israel. They didn't accept Jerusalem as the place to worship God as we see later in the chapter. But the point is that the hatred of the Samaritans and the Jews, it was great. And now Jesus, he's not only speaking to a Samaritan, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman. This broke every social norm. This was not good. You did not do this. In fact, later the Jews would actually codify a law um, that showed a longstanding hatred of the Samaritans and the Samaritan women that in what's called the Mishnah, which would be the Jewish laws later, they would write that all the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore are eternally unclean. So in the Old Testament law, if a uh, woman was going through her menstruation time, um, they would actually uh, call her unclean. You were not allowed to have contact with that woman. You were not allowed to talk to that woman for a week. She had to be ceremonially unclean and purify herself. And so they were saying they hated the Samaritans so much that their women were in that constant state of uncleanness from birth till death. They were to be done away with. They were not to be approached. They were to be avoided at all costs. But this Samaritan woman, she comes to Jacob's well. Jesus is already there. And Jesus asks her for a drink. Verse 8 tells us, and aside from John, that his disciples were not there. They had gone on to Sychar to get food for the remainder of their journey. And as I said, Jesus asked this woman for a drink of water. And naturally, she's, she's confused by this. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I actually like the way the message puts this. It says this, the Samaritan woman taken aback asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She was surprised. She was taken aback. It then says in the message, Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to a Samaritan. As I said, this broke all social norms. It just wasn't done. And she's amazed by this. Why are you talking to me? Why are you asking me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I am? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you are? You Jews aren't supposed to be conversing with us Samaritans. We're evil in your sight. We're nothing to you. You hate us. You think we're half-breeds. We're worthless. We're lower than the earth itself. And yet Jesus has asked her for a drink. Jesus, he's not swayed by this. He's not distracted. He has two purposes for asking her for a drink. First of all, obviously he's thirsty. But he also has an opportunity here. So he responds in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is 
saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, what is this gift of God that it is referring to? Well, obviously it's referring to eternal life that Jesus uh, tells her later that he can give to her. But it's also another parallel to the conversation with Nicodemus. The gift of God would be considered by that culture to be the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So he would be saying to her, if you really knew the scriptures, you would be saying something different to me. Remember, this is the same way he responded to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things? In both cases, Jesus said, if you knew the scriptures, if you had studied the scriptures enough, then you should know what I'm about. You should know what I am teaching. You should understand. And Jesus says to her that she would be asking him for a drink if she understood these things. She obviously clearly didn't, just as Nicodemus didn't. And he would give her living water. And the response she gives, it shows that she has no idea what he is talking about. Verse 11 and 12 The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She doesn't understand that Jesus is talking about her spiritual state. She still thinks he's talking about physical water, just as Nicodemus thought he was talking about physical birth. She sees that he has nothing to draw water from this deep well. Remember, it's over 100 feet deep. How is it he is going to get this supposed living water from the well? Now, it's interesting, this word well here in the Greek actually refers to a, uh, a, a rushing spring, a live spring, which actually is at the bottom of this well. It's not just a, a well that taps in the water table. There's actually an underground spring that fills this well. So she's still thinking, he, oh, he's talking about the moving, the moving water as this living water. But are you somehow going to to make this water flow up? You you said that you can give me this living water. You don't have anything to pull this up with. Are you greater than Jacob, my ancestor? Remember, both the Jews and Samaritans would would have seen Jacob as that great patriarch that started their line, their descendants. And he was a great man. How could Jesus be greater than Jacob. Jacob had to dig this well. Jacob had to, to pull water up out of this well. His descendants had to pull water up out of this well. Are you greater than Jacob? Are you somehow just going to make this water come up? She's in utter disbelief of what she thinks Jesus is telling her. Obviously, this is the case. She doesn't understand what he's talking about, but she's also in a way, she's, she's scoffing at him. She's, she's mocking him in a way. Who do you think you are? What, you just going to magically make this water appear? You don't have anything. Who do you think you are? Where do you plan on getting this water from, sir? How are you going to do this? So just as Nicodemus thought being born again was somehow talking about physical birth and questioned Jesus in disbelief, the woman does the same thing here at Jacob's well. So Jesus, he tries to explain things to her again in verse 13 through 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Obviously, Jesus, he's not talking about physical water. We see that plainly. This is a water that will allow you to never thirst again. 
a water that will become a spring of water that leads to eternal life. This is the gospel. Christ can give us life that we cannot have without him. It's water that only he can give. He can restore us to our state before the fall, a state that's right with God, a state in which death is no more. It's water that Christ and Christ alone can give to her and to anyone who asks of him for it. It's a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 44, verse 3. It says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then also in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is what Jesus is alluding to. He's not talking about the water in the bottom of that well. He's talking about the water of salvation. But the woman, she still doesn't understand. She's still thinking in the natural and physical sense of, of water and thirst. Because she says in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw this water. She thinks the best thing that Jesus is offering her is that she physically will not be thirsty anymore and that she won't have to come here every day and draw water a hundred feet up out of this well. She's so focused on the temporal and immediate and the physical, but Jesus is speaking of the spiritual. We need to understand that spiritual matters are always above temporal matters. They're always above physical matters. You can be in the best physical shape possible. You can be in the best physical standing possible, the best physical situation. But if you're not in the best spiritual position, that is having eternal life. You've missed everything. It's all meaningless. But she doesn't understand at all what Jesus is saying or even what he is offering to her. She just wants a drink that's going to last. She doesn't want to be thirsty anymore. But he is offering eternal life. He is giving her the best news that she will ever hear. Yet she does not understand. She just doesn't get it. And Jesus knows how he's going to get her attention. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. So Jesus is, he's turning the table on the situation. He, he knows what her situation is. He knows what her history is, but she doesn't know he knows that. They've, they've never met. He's a stranger to her. So he tells her to go home and get her husband. And how does she respond in the first part of verse 17? Well, the woman says, I have no husband. I, I have no husband, sir. I, I have no one to go get to fulfill your request. She knows that's not the whole story, of course, but she has no reason to, to reveal the rest of the story to Jesus. But Jesus already knows the answer because what does he say in the rest of verse 17 and verse 18? Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus, he knew exactly what her situation was. Remember, he's God. He knows all. He knew exactly what it was because he created her. He knew her even though she did not know him and had never met him. He tells her that she is correct technically. You somewhat told me the truth. You're, you're right in saying you have no husband. But he proceeds to tell her that he knows she's not had one husband, two husbands, three husbands, four husbands. She's had five husbands. Now, we don't know if these husbands died or if they divorced her for some reason, but the fact is that she's had five. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody that's been married five times. That would be out of ordinary even today. 
but even more so back in the first century culture. But what is worse is now the man she's living with is not her husband. So this woman has had five marriages, have all failed in some way, and now there's a sixth man involved and she's not even married to. It's no wonder that she goes to the well at noon every day. It's no wonder that she travels there alone. This woman does not want to see people as we talked about earlier. She doesn't want to see anybody. She, she does not want to live through the ridicule. She doesn't want to endure the shame and the scorn. She doesn't want to endure the, the people talking behind her back or maybe even talking straight to her face about her life. And now she's talking to a stranger, a Jewish man, who would already be looking down on her for being a Samaritan as far as she was concerned. And she would have thought that somehow this Jewish man who is already going to hate me because I'm a Samaritan, is going to hate me even more when he finds out about all this. Somehow he already knows all this stuff. How does he know about all of this? How could he possibly know any of these things about me? She must be in, in utter shock. So she wants to turn the tables back. She wants to get the, the heat off of herself. So she changes the subject. Verses 19 and 20, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she changes the, the question from talking about her personal life, her personal failings. She wants to ask a theological question. Where is the right place to worship? She does not understand that he has some... Uh, she does this because she does understand that he has some sort of sp- uh, supernatural insight by being able to tell her all the things that she has ever done but not even knowing her. You, you must be some sort of prophet, so you must know some truth here. Where are we supposed to worship? Remember the history of the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans, when they came back and they only read the first five books of the Old Testament, they thought that they should worship at a place called Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim. And the, they based this off of the writings of Moses in, in Deuteronomy. Uh, they didn't accept anything else in Scripture, so they would miss the rest of Scripture that would tell them, hey, the place for the Jews to worship is in Jerusalem. This is where you worship. They refused to accept Jerusalem as the proper place to worship. So she asked this question of Jesus to test him. Okay, you're a prophet. I want to know what you think the truth is. What will he say? But at the same time, by doing this, she's able to distract from the issue that Jesus had raised. What is the proper place of worship? Who is right? Is it the Jews or is it the Samaritans? What do you say? Who is really following God, us or them? But Jesus gives her another answer that she would not have expected. In fact, not only would she, the Samaritan, have not expected this answer, any Jews that he would have told this, it would have rocked the core of their faith and tradition as well. Verses 21 through 24, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying, you you don't understand. The hour is coming. Very shortly, it's actually here. None of what you're asking will even matter. 
The old covenant, it's ending. A new covenant is coming. You will not need to worship the Lord on this mountain. The Jews will not need to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. The, you will be able to worship Him everywhere. The veil will be torn. You will have access to the Father. Salvation is coming through the Jews. The hour is coming. The hour is here. I am the way. I am the one that brings about this change. This is what he's going to tell her in just a moment. But the true worshipers, they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that is who the Father seeks. Worship in spirit. This is not referring to the Holy Spirit. This is referring to the internal human spirit. You must worship the Lord both internally and externally but not because of subjection to some rules and laws about worship as the Jews have been doing for centuries, but because it must be internal. It must be within you, a part of you. It's what's in your heart. And what is in your heart and within you, it pours out in worship to the Lord. That's what we've been talking about all along with believing in the gospel of John. Believing it's not just an outward thing. Believing is is internal. It's a turning of your life over to God. It's an about face. It's a change. It's completely inside. Yes, we confess. Yes, we profess. Yes, that is commanded and you must do it. But it's so much deeper than that. It's within us. It's being born again. It's a new life. It's a new creation. The external is important. What you do externally matters. But it is nothing if you do not believe internally. And we worship in truth, and that is to say that we worship in the way that spirit, uh, spirit, Scripture calls us to. Our worship of God, our actions, our hearts should be centered on what the Scripture teaches us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You know, we, we hear that and we think, but, but the Bible tells us so much more. But if we think about that, everything that the Bible commands us falls right under that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. If you're doing that in everything that you do, guess what? You're going to be living right according to Scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. God seeks out these worshipers by calling them to Himself. He draws them, and they have that change, and they do believe. And even after this, she still does not quite grasp what Jesus is telling her. What does she say in verse 25? The woman said to him, I know that there is a Messiah coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She was confused. She wanted to understand, but she did not think that Jesus was uh, doing a very good job at explaining what he's telling her. So she says that she knows the Messiah is coming. She knows Christ will be given, and she knows that when Christ comes, he's going to explain everything. He's going to tell them all that matters. He will teach them the way. They look to the promise of Deuteronomy 18, 18, which says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. So she's looking for this Messiah. She's looking for the prophet. He's standing right in front of her. She has no idea, no idea. And then Jesus said to her in verse 26, I who speak to you, am he. 
I am the one. I am he. You are looking for me. The Messiah you long for, the one that you think and believe will tell you anything. Guess what? That is me. I am that Messiah. I am the Christ. I am telling you all things. I am drawing you to myself right now in this moment. I am telling you the truth. I am the way of salvation. I am the way that gives you eternal life. I am the water that I am speaking about. I am the Christ. Jesus reveals himself plainly to her, something he had not so clearly done in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, at the temple, he spoke in what seemed like riddles. But here, to this woman, he puts it all out there. I am the Christ. I am the one you are looking for. It is me. I am the one. And just as Jesus makes this revelation, the disciples interrupt them. They come back in verse 27, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? For all the reasons that they, we've already discussed tonight, the disciples would have been shocked and amazed. Why is he talking to her? Does he know who she is? First of all, why is he talking to a woman? She's a Samaritan woman. Jesus, Master, what are you doing? But they didn't dare say anything to him about it. But the woman, she was also amazed. She was shocked by what she had been just told by Christ in verse 28. It says, so the woman, she left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and they were coming to him. So she runs, she's leaving her water jar behind. She runs back to the town, says, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. There is a man there who's told me everything I've ever done. Of course, you know, everybody would have known everything she'd ever done. There's a man who told me everything about myself. I've never met him, but he somehow knows everything about me. Can this be the Christ? Could this be true? She doesn't tell them everything that Jesus told her. They would Hardly believe her, I'm sure, that she had met the Christ, but they would come see a man who knew everything about her. They would want to see that. They would want to see that and see, well, who is he? What is he all about? How does he know everything if he has never met her? And she's, she's on fire. She's filled with excitement. She's running to tell him this. Come and see. You have to see this. You have to meet this Jesus. So they followed her and they went to Christ. Jesus plainly reveals himself to those who have been given to him by the Father. He calls out to them directly. He offers them hope. And so he offers them the spring of living water. And just as the Samaritan woman responded here, just as Philip responded in John chapter 1 by going and getting Nathaniel and saying, come and see Christ, we should go to everyone we know. We should go to everyone we see. We should be excited. We should say, come and see the Christ. Come and know the Savior. Because Jesus, he has plainly revealed himself to us. We know exactly who he is. We know what he's about. We should tell that good news to everyone that we come across, everyone that we see. We should shout it from the rooftops. Come see the man. Come see the Christ. Come meet the Lord who knows everything about me and everything I've ever done. Everything we have ever said, everything we've done, every place we've been, everything we've not done, every dream that we have, every hope that we have, every regret that we have. And he takes all of that, takes all our shame away, takes all our guilt away, takes all our sin away, and gives us eternal life that we can be called righteous 
before God. We should be shouting that from the rooftops. Come and see Christ. And so as we go out tonight, let us be ignited with that fire that this woman was. As soon as she found out who Christ was, she went and told everybody, come and see, come and see. Let us be ignited with that fire of evangelism. To go out and tell everybody we know, come and see this man. Come and see Christ. He has made me better. He has given me hope. And he can do the same for you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again, Lord, for everything that you've shown us in this passage, Lord, in this interaction with this woman. Breaking all, all barriers of culture to go speak to somebody that was untouchable. And Lord, as you reached out to her, we know that you have reached out to us, Lord, and saved us. And we thank you for that, Father. Lord, give us the strength and give us that fire and excitement and courage to go out and do the same thing that she did and tell everybody that we know about you and what you have done. Let us go boldly and speak the truth. In Jesus' name we pray.